promise I'm not quitting already. My voice started getting scratchy singing there, so I figured I may need my water here in a second. So what we're going to talk about this morning, it it's, might be a little bit different than some sermons that you hear. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time doing kind of a, an overview of the book of Joshua and almost a little bit of a character study about who Joshua is and what he does. I don't know if I did that. You might have done that. Who knows? Um, and then once we get to a certain point in Joshua's life, I want us to stop and dig into something that he did and something that hopefully that we can learn from that. So Joshua. Typically we hear of Joshua as being maybe a warrior of some kind, that he was the man who led the children of Israel when they actually went into Canaan to start conquering Canaan. Um, the book named after him, um, after Joshua himself, um, that records that time that he goes into Canaan. But believe it or not, we're actually introduced to Joshua significantly earlier than that in the Bible. He's not just some random guy that was chosen out of a group of people that says, all right, I want you now to go start be the leader of the, of the children of Israel after Moses passed away. So who exactly is Joshua? Where do we come to meet him at? So turn over to... I mean, obviously, we're going to spend time in the book of Joshua. We're going to spend some time back in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Um, so going back to the first five or six books of the Old Testament, if you want to open to where our text is going to be at. So we're first introduced to Joshua around about Exodus chapter 17. And what happened, if, if you remember back to Exodus chapter 16, the children of Israel had already come out of Egypt, um, and they were out walking and they start grumbling and complaining that they don't have any food. And so um, God gives them the bread from heaven, which is the manna that we know about. Then in Exodus chapter 17, people started to complain and to grumble that they had no water. So they had the leaven, or sorry, they had the manna, they had a little bit of food. Now they're complaining they don't have any water. This is where Moses brought water out of the rock for them. And the people of Amalek come up during Exodus chapter 17, and they attack the children of Israel. We probably don't think of Joshua in this situation during this battle with the children or with the people of Amalek, because what we think of during this—that's when Moses goes up and he sits on a the top of a hill, and you have Aaron and you have Hur that stand beside him and help him hold his arms up. And as long as he has his arms up, the children of Israel win. When his arms start to fall down, they start to lose the battle. That's when Aaron and Hur step in. They're going to hold his arms up for him so the children of Israel can win this battle against the people of Amalek. Joshua was the leader of the army actually down doing the fighting during that time. That's when we're really first introduced to Joshua. So Joshua, again, he's, he's not some guy that just got randomly pulled out of the crowd when Moses passed away. He's somebody who had already built himself up as kind of a leader, a commander within within Israel really from a military standpoint. And so it makes sense then that as they start to go in to conquer Canaan, they start to overthrow these kingdoms that are there, it makes sense that somebody with a military background and was already seen as a leader from that standpoint would step into that role. So Joshua goes on, he's the leader of that army at that point, and then we find out in Exodus chapter 24 they now get to Mount Sinai, the children of Israel, as they've been traveling away from Egypt. They get to Mount Sinai. They're at the base of it, 
and Moses goes up onto the mountain, and that's where he's going to get the tablet with the Ten Commandments on it. Most of us are familiar with that story. What you may not know, though, is in Exodus 24, verse 13, it says, So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. So by this point in Exodus 24, Joshua has kind of built himself up to pretty much be Moses' right-hand man. Right? He's going to be the, the second person in command, more or less, with Moses. Now, granted, Aaron was the one who was kind of the spokesman for Moses, but Joshua was the one that he wanted by his side to help him. So again, Joshua is beginning to be seen as kind of a leader within the children of Israel at this point. In Exodus chapter 32, this is when Moses starts to come down off the mountain. So he was up there for roughly about seven to eight chapters in Exodus. When he comes down and they start hearing all this noise, Joshua is the one that notified Moses that he hears all this noise in the camp and they thought they were being attacked. And it turns out that's when they had built the golden calf. People were partying and dancing and doing all kinds of things they shouldn't have been doing. Joshua was the one who notified Moses of that going on. So that's kind of our first introduction to Joshua. Then we go on to the time when we think we probably first hear about Joshua, and this is really when you get into Numbers chapter 13, and you have the 12 spies sent into the land of Canaan. So they've been traveling through the wilderness, leaving Egypt. They get up now to where the land of Canaan is going to be at. This is what God has promised to his people that they're going to get. And so Moses picks 12 spies to go into the land of Canaan. But listen to what it says in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 2. It says, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Well, Joshua was one of the twelve spies that was sent. And God specifically told Moses to choose a chief from each tribe. So again, we're seeing that Joshua has risen himself not only in the respect of Moses, but also within the respect of the people of the children of Israel that he's put himself up as kind of the leader of the tribe that he's in. So um, Joshua is one of the 12 spies. He goes into the land of Canaan. I know many of us have heard this story before, but if not necessarily, they go in and Joshua and Caleb, they're two of the 12. They see everything. They think, hey, this is great. We can go do this. The other 10 said, yeah, everything in there is great, but we can't do it. We can't overthrow it. If we go in, we're going to get destroyed. So they go in. It's verse 27 of chapter 13. says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and this has always caught my attention. You can raise your hands in this. It's okay. How many of you have grapevines in your yard like grapes? You can get a cluster of grapes. Where we used to live at when we first got married, uh, or I guess when we first moved back to Cookville, we had a grapevine out in our yard. And it didn't produce much. But every once in a while, I think we might have made a couple little jars of jelly one time. That's about all the grapes we got off of it. They find a cluster of grapes when they go into the land of Canaan that is so big, they literally have the cluster of grapes hanging from a pole between two men as they carry it. I imagine, or I guess I've seen in movies and stuff, when you're doing something like that, you're like carrying a pig or something that's hanging from the pole, and two guys are carrying it because they're going to go all somewhere and cook a fire and do whatever and eat the thing. A cluster of grapes that big. That's always blown my mind. That's what I remember from them going through the land of Canaan and these giants and everything else. So it's a great, fantastic land they were going to go into, but 
the other 10 spies that come out with Joshua and, Joshua and Caleb said, we can't do it. We go in there. There's people bigger than us that are mightier than us. They're going to destroy us. We're going to be gone. Verse 32, it says, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So it showed really there was a lack of trust in God. But Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14, verses 7 and 8, it said, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Remember, they're walking out carrying this cluster of grapes, so they had physical proof to be able to show people. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. The reason he says that is an analogy. They're bread to us. If you, I mean, you're going to go and fight against a loaf of bread. I would think that's pretty easy. You're going to squish it pretty quickly. So these giants, the other ten spies that they thought were just going to annihilate them, Joshua and Caleb were like, Guys, it's bread. We can just step on it. We can squish it. It's not going to be a problem. We have God on our side. What we start to see now in Joshua is not just what we saw in Exodus where he starts to gain a reputation as a leader, somebody from a military standpoint, but we start to see his attitude a little bit here in, in Numbers 13 and 14, his dedication that he had to following God. When you had these other ten that showed complete distrust in what God could do for them, even though he's brought them this far, Joshua never lost that attitude of faith in God and that trust that he had in God. And the response that they got from this is the people wanted to stone him. All the children of Israel wanted to stone Joshua because he said that they could go in and do this. Now, ultimately, what led to this, or the result that came out of this, this is when God told them that nobody over the age of 20 was going to end up in the land of Canaan. This starts the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, all because they did not trust God enough to be able to go into the land of Canaan. Now we jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 31. So they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That 40-year wandering is over at this point, and we get to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses is now 120 years old. Moses is an old man. If you remember, though, when he started um, going to get the children of Israel out of Egypt when he interacted with the burning bush and all that, he's about 80 years old at that point. So you can see the 40-year wondering. He's pushing 120 by this point. Um, Moses, because of some sins he had in his own life, he was not going to be allowed to go into the land of Canaan. He was taken up onto the mountain where he passed away at, and he was allowed to see into the land of Canaan, the land that had been promised to him that, where they were going, but he was not going to be allowed to go in. And this is Moses now speaking to Joshua. He's pretty much telling him, you're going to be the one to take the people in because I'm not going to be allowed to go. Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8 says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you for, or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua has never lost the attitude that he had initially when he went in as one of the 12 spies. He knew at this point that he could go in and take this land. The same mindset he had 40 years before that when he knew they could have gone in and taken it. So that's who Joshua was. Now we get up to the book of Joshua where we start seeing, okay, now he's leading the children of Israel. What's actually going to happen? If you want to go over and turn to Joshua 21, I'm going to give kind of a quick overview fairly quickly through the first few chapters of Joshua, just kind of summarize each one of them, what they're about, 
Um, and then we're going to stop when we get to chapter 10, and that's where I want us to look at the lesson we're going to do today. So Joshua, I mean, don't have time to go through all the details in the timeline. It was estimated he was around 30 to 40 years old when they went into Canaan as one of the spies, which would put him around about 70 to 80 years old at this point, which is basically the same age Moses was when he went into Egypt to go get the children of Israel to come out. So you're talking about somebody who's 70 to 80 years old now. So you get into chapter 1, and Joshua is wasting no time. And I know this map is very small, but it starts up here. This is when they're leaving Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They get down to Mount Sinai. They come up, and they're spying in on Canaan. They start their wilderness wandering, and then they get up here, and this is where Moses dies at, taken up on a hill where they can see over into the land of Canaan. This is the, the salt sea here with the Jordan River up above it. So you kind of have an idea of what we're looking at because I'm going to show a couple more maps here in a second. But when Moses dies, Joshua takes over. They are sitting right about the tip of where that little red line is at right there. The important thing is Joshua wastes no time. As soon as he finds out that he's the one taking over, he goes into the people, into the children of Israel, and we find out in chapter 1, verses uh, 10 and 11, it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Pre Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is in chapter 1. As soon as he gets command of the army, we're done. We're not waiting anymore. We're not wandering anymore in this wilderness. We're getting into Canaan now. You guys go tell everybody, get your stuff ready. You've got three days to prepare we're now going to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, we're going to start taking it. So basically at this point, they had learned their lesson. They weren't going to do any more of this complaining about, well, we can't do this, we can't do this, because last time it resulted in them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That 40 years of wilderness wandering obviously taught them a lesson, like, all right, we got this, let's go. So we go into chapter 2. Chapter 2, and this is up at the same place, you have the Salt Sea here, the Jordan River, and that's kind of where the end of that little red line was at. Jericho is this first little city right across the Jordan River. That's the first place that they're going to attack when they go in. So Joshua sends two spies over because he wants them to go check out the city of Jericho. All right, tell us what's there. Tell us what we're going to be up against. And so they go. This is where they meet Rahab, the harlot. Um, she hides them for them because the, the people there had found out that the children of Israel were literally camped right across the Jordan River. I mean, these people were not oblivious to the children of Israel being out there. They knew that these people had been wandering around in the wilderness. They had spies of their own that they sent out on horseback or camel or whatever. They knew where this group of people were at. They knew that God had been with them. They knew they had crossed the, the Red Sea. And they knew that they had defeated different kings down this side as they were on their way up to the east side of the Jordan River. So the people in Jericho already knew about it. And as soon as those two spies come in, they had been watching for them, and they go to Rahab and said, we saw those spies come in here. Where are they at? Rahab said, they already, they already came and gone. They left. If you go chasing after them, you can find them. Well, she had hidden them up on the roof of the house. She makes a deal with the 12 spies and says, look, we know who you are. We know God is with you. Please spare our family because we know you're going to come and overthrow the city. We know there's no way we can defeat you because you've got God with you. Please make sure that me and my family were taken care of. The spies make a deal with her. They said, if you hang this red scarlet out your, or this scarlet um, 
napkin or pour by whatever it was. You hang it out your window so that we can see it. Nobody in your house will be harmed. And they weren't. So they head back. And again, they learned their lesson from the last time spies were sent into Canaan. And they said, we got this. We can do this. No problem. So we move on to chapter 3. Chapter 3, they start marching towards the Jordan River with all the people. Now, the, the priests that are supposed to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is picked up, and they go out before them. And they are told to stay roughly a half mile. Um, I think the scripture said it was about 2,000 cubits that they had to stay back behind the Ark of the Covenant, the children of Israel did, which comes out to roughly a half mile, something like that. Um, but it's they can still see it out in front of them. But when they get up to the edge of the river, so you have the priest, uh, you can kind of see them here, the priest that are carrying the ark. When they get over to the edge of the river, as soon as they put their, the soles of their shoes into the river, the river parts for them. So this is the second time that the children of Israel now are actually crossing a body of water that has been parted for them. So the river itself backs up. It, it says it piles up in a heap is the way that uh, the scripture describes it up at, I believe, the city of Adam. And so they're able to cross over on dry land. So that's where we're at in chapter 3 is they start traveling towards the Jordan River. The priests step in the edge of it. The waters part, and now the children of Israel can start to cross. So we go over into chapter 4. Now the children of Israel are actually crossing the Jordan River on dry ground. And what Joshua does is he commands 12 men, one from each of the tribes, to get a stone out of the river bring that stone with them and cross it. And that stone comes from right around where the priests had been standing at. Because as long as the priests were standing there in the riverbed, the water stayed backed up so they could cross over. And what they end up with is roughly about 40,000 fighting men cross over the Jordan into Gilgal for them to go fight. One man from each of the tribes carries a stone out of the riverbed with them. They pile those stones up on the other side of the river and basically make a little memorial. It's interesting, we sang the song right before this that talked about that they were raising their Ebenezer. The Ebenezer, it was a reference to a monument that was built back in Old Testament times that was a memorial so that when people see that stone that they named Ebenezer, they could remind their children what God had done for them. Same concept behind these stones. They piled those stones up on the other side of the Jordan River so they could remind the children someday, this is what God did for us splitting the Jordan River so we could walk across. So they get 40,000 men go across. They're now camping at Gilgal right outside of Jericho. And I promise you the people of Jericho know they're there. And they're shaking in their boots. They're scared about this because they know what's getting ready to come. So chapter 5, this is, they don't immediately go into Jericho to attack. They stay at Gilgal for a little bit because they first, they're holding their first ever Passover is, that they have inside the land of Canaan. The first Passover they ever have in Canaan, they have it while they're camped right here at Gilgal. So they stay there. Any of the children that had been born during their wilderness wandering had not been circumcised, so they circumcise them at this time. They obviously need to then wait um, for them to be able to heal to go in. But something very interesting happens right here. And just think about Joshua at this point as leading these children of Israel. He's getting ready to go in and start fighting against kingdoms. I mean, he's not just going into like little towns and villages to throw over. He's going up against kings and armies and everything of all these cities that we're getting ready to hear about. And he's getting ready to fight them with people that have been wandering around in the wilderness for decades now. He looks out his, his I say window, I don't know, his tent door or something. And he sees 
this man standing there. And there's a man standing outside of his tent, <coughs> dressed in armor, holding a sword. So listen to what Joshua says. This is chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says, And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua doesn't know who this is. He just sees somebody coming up. For all he knows, it's somebody who's representing another army out there. So he's like, look, are, are you here to kill us or are you here to help us fight? Are you with us or are you against us? Listen to what the man said to him. And he said, no, but I am. In, so it wasn't, hey, I'm with you or I'm against you. It's just no. I'm not with you and I'm not against you. I'm neither one of those. He says, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So put yourself in Joshua's shoes. <clears throat> you have the commander of the army of the Lord. So an angelic being of some type, more than likely, is literally standing outside of his tent telling him, I'm here with you. All right? I'm here to fight. It's a reminder to Joshua that it was not Joshua and the children of Israel that are getting ready to overthrow Canaan. It's God who's getting ready to overthrow Canaan. The children of Israel are just the instruments by which God's going to use to carry that out. But it's God actually the one doing the conquering. <clears throat> so he did not leave them out there by themselves. And, and I can just imagine the comfort that this likely would have brought to Joshua. Now we jump over to chapter 6. Now they start their actual conquest. They go into the land of Jericho. They start marching around it. This is the same story we hear in our Bible classes as kids. They march around it once a day for six days. The seventh day they march around it seven times while the the priests are blowing the trumpets. Everybody starts to shout. The walls come down. Uh, Rahab and her family are saved. They get to come out, and they overthrow the uh, city of Jericho. They win it pretty easily. All right? Put yourself in the shoes of the army. Okay, they're, they, they're coming out of this kind of confident now. They come out as like, you know what? We got this. This isn't going to be as hard as we thought it was. Maybe 40 years ago, we should have told our parents to go ahead and done this. I don't know why we went wandering around the wilderness for 40 years for it. Joshua makes an oath at that point that no man will ever rebuild Jericho. After that, the, the city of Jericho, through history, has never existed again. And it's because Joshua made an oath that at no point again will anybody ever rebuild that city. So they're done with their first conquest. They've taken Jericho. This is where they're marching around the city. Now you go into chapter 7. Jericho is done. <clears throat> Jericho's been knocked off the map. Now they have this little town called Ai. That's their next place they go. So they send spies into Ai, just like they did with Jericho before. It says, all right, go find out what it's like. Are we going to be able to do this? The spies come back now, probably puffed up a little bit from how things went at Jericho. Like, guys, we got this. These, these guys at Ai, they're nothing compared to the guys at Jericho. We're just out. We don't need the whole army. We don't, two or 3,000 guys were good. They had taken 40,000 into Jericho. They said, look, two or 3,000, we're good. Don't worry about it. And so they go and they get annihilated. This place is nowhere near the size, near the, the army power that Jericho had, and Ai easily drives the children of Israel back out of it. Uh, scriptures tell us that 36 of their men were killed in that. And so Joshua tries to find out, he's like, God, what's going on? Why did you drive us back out of this? Well, when they were at Jericho and they destroyed the city, they were told you utterly destroyed all. The only things that were to be kept were things that were precious in value because those were going to go into the treasury of the, of the, uh, the tabernacle. 
<clears throat> so you had gold, your silver, bronze, different things. They said nobody is to keep anything. Nothing is to be plundered. You're not supposed to come out of there with your spoils of war. You destroy everything, the precious stuff, you put it into the treasury. <clears throat> well, when they get defeated at Ai, J Joshua now approaches God. He didn't approach God before they went in to ask for, hey, are, are we ready to do this? They went on in, get defeated. He comes out and he asks God, and God says, uh-uh, you got sin in your camp. I told you guys not to take anything from, from Jericho. Somebody did. Go find out who it was. And so once they start digging in and they, they start talking to the different tribes, they find out that it was a man by the name of Achan, that he had taken, it was a, a nice kind of oriental robe that he had taken and some silver and some gold, and it was buried in his tent. Achan and all of his family, they're killed, they're stoned and then burned. And at that point, God's anger has been extinguished. It's done. So now they decide we're going back to Ai again. But this time before they went in in chapter 8, God talk, they talked to God and God told them what to do, how to go about it. Don't just take your two or 3,000 guys because you think you're good enough to do this on your own. Remember who it is that's actually the one overthrowing all these armies. This is God. Remember, the commander of his army was there. God's the one doing this. So don't go in there thinking that you're going to make the rules and decide what you're going to do. I'm telling you now, this is the way you're going to attack AI. You go at them from one side, but secretly send a group of men around the backside to kind of hide an ambush. So that's what they do. So Joshua and, and most of the army go directly at them. The men of Ai see them coming again. It's like, hey, here's these children of Israel. They think they can overthrow us this time. They're all confident because they'd already beat them once. They go out, drive out, and push them out. Every man from the city of Ai left the city to go chasing after the children of Israel. And that allowed the 5,000 troops that were on the backside of Ai to just walk right into the city and they burned it to the ground. And as soon as they see the smoke from it, the, the group that the men of Ai were pushing out that was being led by Joshua, they turn right around and come back and attack them, utterly destroy Ai. So they follow God's rules. They, God told them what to do. They do it. They're able to take out Ai. Well, now you get to chapter 9. And if you're looking at kind of a path they're taking, it makes sense. They cross the Jordan River. They defeat Jericho. They defeat Ai. Well, it kind of looks like this little town named Gibeon will be next on the list. All right? Well, the people of Gibeon know this. They're, they're not oblivious to what's going on around them. They know Jericho's already been destroyed. They know Ai's been destroyed, and they know they're probably next. So they, dis, they devise a, a scheme. They're going to go and try to deceive the children of Israel. They dress in all these dirty and old, worn-out robes. They take moldy food with them, and they come and tell them, hey, we're from some far-off country. We want to come and be your slaves. We don't want you to destroy our people. We know that you guys are coming in and conquering Canaan, so please let us just serve you as your slaves. Joshua does not approach God about this and instead makes the agreement with them. Okay, we will take you and your people in, we will allow you to be our slaves and we'll help protect you. Which again, goes against everything God had told them to do. They were supposed to utterly destroy everybody in Canaan. But now they've just made a pact with the group, then come to find out the men had lied to them and they were literally men that were right in line to be destroyed next. So now the children of Israel can't destroy the next city. They've got to uphold their bargain they had just made. They're going to protect these people. Now we get to chapter 10, and this is where I want us to actually talk about. 
There's something that happened in chapter 10 that's very unique. You have a lot of kings that are from down in this area. They know what's going on. They know that the children of Israel have made an agreement with Gibeon. And Gibeon, that city, has a lot of mighty men of war. They're probably more powerful than Jericho was, than Ai was. And they's like, look, if Gibeon is now joining them, we don't stand a chance, the rest of our kingdoms. So you've got five kings. They've joined together, and they're going to go attack Gibeon. They want to attack that city to get them out of the way so that they can fight the children of Israel when they come in. Well, the people of Gibeon, they reach out to the children of Israel in verse 8, and it said, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before them. So Joshua hears the children of Gibeon. He goes over them, over to them to help protect them, to uphold their end of the bargain. And God says, go, I've got you. You're fine. You go fight against these five kings all at one time. So Joshua attacks these five kings all at once. God gets involved in this. This is the first time, like we said, God's the one who's going to be overthrowing all these kingdoms in Canaan. This is the first one that we see God physically do something here. Verse 11, listen to this. It says, And as they fled before Israel, all these kingdoms, these five kings and their armies, they're fleeing, they're fleeing before Israel. While they were going down the ascent to Beth Baran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So as they're leaving God starts fighting at this point and starts throwing down hailstones from heaven, and he ends up killing more people than what the children of Israel were able to kill. Put yourself in the shoes of Joshua at this point. What confidence is that going to give you now as you're leading this army in, knowing not only did God tell me I'm going to win, he's literally fighting for me on my side. We should be good. Listen to what happens next here. This comes from Joshua chapter 10. So if you want to turn over and look at something and read along with me, this is the one I want you to get. Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. This is what I want us to stop and talk about for a second. We're, we're going to wrap up with this. There's a lesson in this that I think many times we get caught up in, and this is a, a common story that's taught in children's Bible classes, just like Jericho is, that Joshua made the sun stand still. Okay, that's great. But why? Why did Joshua ask for the sun to stand still at this point? If you think back to miracles in the Bible, miracles that would have had a global impact. Yes, Jesus and the apostles, they healed people, they cast out demons, but I'm talking a miracle that literally impacts the entire earth at one time. Typically, the two we would think of is creation and the flood. Those two, there was not a single part of the planet that was not impacted at some point by those two miracles. This is your third one the sun standing still. Because if you think about it, not only did the sun stand still, but the way our solar system works, basically what it meant is the earth stopped spinning. 
because the sun's not moving around the earth. So for the sun to stand still in the sky, the earth stopped moving, stopped rotating on its axis. I looked up online about what impact that would have on the planet if the Earth ever stopped rotating on its axis. It's basically, if anything else, imagine yourself standing on a moving platform and the platform stops all of a sudden. You're going to fall. Anything not attached to the planet will continue to move. All right? Momentum will keep you moving. We don't feel ourselves moving right now, but we are because the air is moving with us. Anything not attached to the earth would have kept going. Think back to the eclipse, 2017. We were in Sevierville when that happened up at Polishing the Pulpit. It was neat. They had people going outside with their little glasses to put on to watch the shadows on the ground and do all kinds of stuff. I remember one of the things they talked about of having a concern was what were the animals going to do? Because the animals have a natural thing built into them when it starts to get dark that it's time for them to start going to bed. They were afraid what would happen is animals that were directly in the line of this eclipse would start thinking it's nighttime, and they would start getting in their nighttime routines and doing whatever, and what would it do to cattle? How was this going to mess with them? Imagine not only the people who were there in Gibeon and in the land of Canaan when the sun stopped and it literally stayed for about a day, the people on the other side of the planet has now darkness. They're not time for a whole extra day. Imagine the impact this would have had on animals and stuff then. But really what this gets down to is God allowed something to happen to the planet that would have a direct impact on the entire world that according to science should have tore the world apart. According to science, for the earth to stop spinning on its axis, the earth basically should have ripped itself apart when that happened. It didn't. It goes to show that God has control of this planet that we're on. Not only did he have control of what was going on in the armies and the battles that were going on, he had control of the entire planet. He could have done anything he wanted to at that point. But here's what I really want us to get out of this story. Joshua makes a request of God, and he asks for the sun to stand still over Gibeon. Have you ever thought, stopped to think why he asked that? Why did Joshua ask for the sun to stand still? Well, obviously it's so he could continue to fight. He wasn't done attacking these kings, these five kings. He needed more time. He needed to be able to, to conquer them and to make sure they get wiped out before the sun went down. Now, think of what Joshua could have asked. Think of what Joshua could have said to God instead of, hey, I need the sun to stand still. He very easily could have like, hey, God, it's going to get dark here soon. If it gets dark, we can't fight. It's a new moon. We're not going to be able to see anything. And so we're going to go back to our camps. They're going to go back to their camps. They're going to regroup, and they're going to come back with a better plan to fight us tomorrow. We're not going to be able to fight them tomorrow. I need this taken care of today. God, can you send down some more hailstones? We don't have time to fight this another day. Can you send down more of the hailstones that you've been raining down up to this point? Just go ahead and wipe the rest of them out. Or he could have said, God, can you open up the earth and let these armies fall into it? It's getting dark out here. 
we don't have time to get this taken care of. I need you to step in and take care of this for us. Or the commander of the army that we saw earlier, we know there's an entire army sitting out there. Let's let our army go back and rest at this point. And God, you send your army out here to fight. Send your commander that I've already talked to back in chapter 5. Send him out here to let him fight for us for a while. Joshua very easily could have requested all of that stuff, but he didn't. Joshua did not ask God to do it for him. And that's the lesson I really want us to get out of this. And I told you this, this sermon was going to be a little different. It's more of an overview of Joshua, a little bit of a character study of Joshua, but to wrap up with something that I think is going to help all of us when it comes to us living our Christian lives. Joshua knew that he was the instrument that God wanted in order to conquer the land of Canaan. He was a tool being used by God. And so when he runs into a situation where he needs something done, he didn't ask God to do it for him. He knew he was the one supposed to be doing it. So instead, what he did is he asked God, leave the door open. Please give me the opportunity where I can, I can do what you're wanting me to do. God, leave the sun staying up here for a little while. We're fighting right now. We're winning. We want to keep pushing on these people. Don't let it get dark yet. Don't let the sun go down. We want to keep fighting. God, leave this door open for us. Don't let the door close. When we think to what we do as Christians, when, when it comes to evangelizing, when it comes to trying to spread the gospel, whether it's trying to help people financially with benevolent work that we're doing, I hear often in prayer sometimes that you have somebody who's had a family member die, and it says, God, wrap, wrap your loving arms around them and comfort them. That's great. We need to ask that. But are we doing what Joshua didn't? Are we asking God to do something for us so that we don't have to go do it? We want God to comfort those people. Okay, that's great, but what am I doing to comfort them? All right, God, we pray that the borders of your kingdom get spread. Are we asking God to give us the opportunity to go spread the borders of the kingdom for him? God, please soften the hearts of people so that I can go and talk to them and so that when I talk to them, they're going to be willing to accept and to listen to what I'm saying. Or do we expect God to do these things for us? Joshua very easily could have done that when he was fighting against five kingdoms. They were drastically outnumbered. I mean, was, would not have even been close. But they were winning, but he didn't step back and say, God, finish this for me. We're tired. We're done. We're ready to go home. You just go ahead and take care of the rest of this. We're going to go rest. Instead, he asked God to give him the opportunity to finish it for God. So when we're dealing with stuff today, when I have skills, that things that I can go and do, yes, I use those skills to provide for my family, to go and have a job, to go do whatever. Am I looking for ways to use those skills, whatever talents God has given me, to use them in his church? in some way to help his church to grow, to help bring salvation to other people? Or do I just go use my talents God gave me for something I want to do, and then I ask God to take care of all the rest of this stuff having to deal with his church? Do we see ourselves as instruments for God in his church today, the same way that Joshua saw the children of Israel being instruments for God for conquering the land of Canaan? I appreciate you listening to me this morning. I know it, it gets a little long-winded and a lot of stuff to go through. But traditionally, as is done, any time that we meet together as God's people, 
we always want to leave the the opportunity open for anybody that may be struggling with something in their life. If if you need prayers on your behalf, if you've done things that are of a public nature that you need to let people around you know that hey, I'm I'm repenting. I want you all to know that I'm sorry for what I did. Or if you want to become part of the body of Christ, you want to obey the gospel like we talked about in the class out here in the auditorium earlier, that you want to become part of that body of Christ where you can get access to salvation someday. We're leaving that opportunity available right now. So if you need prayers or if you want to become part of God's kingdom, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.